When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex, associate editor and film writer at Deadline. On today's episode, we're talking to documentarian Nancy Cates, who's the director of the PBS documentary, Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin. Now, the documentary came out in 2003, but Right now is a better time as ever to sort of rediscover it and reexamine the things that Kate's goes over in the documentary that the Netflix film titled Rustin that came out on November 3rd doesn't exactly cover. Now, about the documentary, it chronicles the life of Rustin and during his 60-year career as an activist, organizer, and proclaimed troublemaker, he formulated many strategies that propelled the American civil rights movement. And in 1963, he brought his unique skills to the crowning glory of his career and really to the civil rights movement, which was his work organizing the March on Washington, which was the biggest protest America had ever seen at that time. Now, again, the Netflix version uh, talks a little bit about that and talks about his relationship with, you know, other civil rights leaders and how things weren't all, you know, sunshine and rainbows like we may like to think it is. There was a lot of discord there. And it's one of the the things that the documentary really goes into um, because, of course, documentaries do what films cannot do, uh, which is, you know, be more expansive and take a little bit more liberties with the types of stories that they want to tell and the information that they research and curate and things of that nature. Today, Nancy and I talk all about Bayard Rustin and why his impact was not only important for the LGBTQ community, but important for American history. And with that said, let's get into the discussion. I am not ready to die. I want no Negro to die. I want no human being to die or to be brutalized because I thoroughly believe that this struggle can be won without brutalization. Thank you, Nancy, for coming on to the Scene to Scene podcast. Uh, it is an extremely ugly, rainy weekend in New York City for like the fifth week in a row. So I hope the weather is better where you're at. It's going to rain sometime later, but it's not raining at the moment. So all good. Okay. So what is it about Bayard Rustin that interested you in, in becoming a part of this documentary? Um, he's accomplished, you know, so many great things in addition to being like a historical queer figure. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was inspired to make the film, which was my idea. I wasn't part of it. I started it. Um, 
I was inspired by reading a review of a book called, um, I think it was called Byron Brusson Troubles I've Seen, or maybe it's Troubles I've Seen. I should look this up was first, but um, it was a book by a man named Jervis Anderson who wrote for the New Yorker, who's unfortunately no longer alive. And I read the review of his book in the New York Times, and I was just completely inspired by someone who dedicated you know, his entire life from the age of 15 for 60 years. He worked on nonviolence, on civil rights, and you know, did a little bit of gay rights stuff at the end of his life. But he was an, a really committed activist and social change agent for 60 years. And I just thought, wow, like, what are the rest of us doing with our lives? Like, he was extremely clear about where he was going in, in his life and what he wanted to work on. And I just, I think it's still incredibly inspiring that somebody would do that. And now that the film, the film is coming out, uh, by George Wolfen. Have you had a chance to see the film? I have. Yeah, I saw it last week. You saw it last week. And can you talk a little bit about what you thought about it in terms of, do you think it captured those special moments in his life? It's a little tricky to ask me <laughs> to comment <laughs> on another person's work about Rustin. Um, I thought that Coleman Domingo, Domingo was amazing. Um, you know, it made me proud of our documentary too, to mm -hmm. see it. I mean, you know, we didn't have millions of dollars to make a, right. a Hollywood film, but I, I feel like I should let the critics talk about mm -hmm. George Wolf's film and not me, if that's okay. No, that's that's totally fine. I, I asked because your documentary broadened the story even more and opened me up to more aspects of his of his life you know a film is always going to be curated and categorized in a specific way whereas a documentary or documentaries in general I feel are just kind of more open and more nuanced in in that regard and so that's why I wanted to just get a, a quick opinion you but know, we were we were able to talk about his you know childhood in Westchester Pennsylvania and you know, his activism right out of college and even in college where he organized a protest because the food at Westchester University was so bad. Right. Um, and, you know, and he got thrown out of colleges for, you know, being disruptive. I mean, one of the things I would say about the narrative film is that, it, you know, it looks at a fairly narrow swath of his life. And we tried to look at his whole life, which is just a very right. different undertaking. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I make biographies, so I like looking at people's whole lives, if that's possible. Um, but certainly, like, being raised as a Quaker and, you know, having gone to India to try to study with Gandhi. Gandhi was assassinated before he got there. But um, he had a whole life prior to the March on Washington. And I think we have this tendency to put people in boxes. And so he's obviously Mr. March on Washington. But there was a lot more to his life, including some really heroic work in the forties where, you know, he would sometimes be the only person doing a nonviolent protest against racism, you know, for himself, mm -hmm. which is a very dangerous thing for him to do. Mm -hmm. And he was beaten up, he was arrested, you know, he was called names. I mean, it, it, he was a very brave human being. So, you know, it's, it's not really apples and oranges, it's apples and giraffes or something. Right, right, it's, uh, you're right. It's two totally different mediums and spheres, you know, and it, but I think it's important to understand, to know a whole person, you know, than to know part of one's life, which is of course, extremely important, but 
context is also important. Um, and these kinds of histories, you know, especially as people are, you know, saying that they're just now, a lot of them are just now hearing about who Rustin is and his contributions to the civil rights movement, I think. Um, well, it's great to have a feature film that, you know, gets at least something about him to a very wide audience, because mm -hmm. that's difficult in documentary. I mean, I think more than a million people saw our film broadcast on public television, which is amazing, but it doesn't have the kind of reach or buzz, you know, that a feature film does. And Domingo's performance is, you know, they keep calling it Oscar bait, you know, it's like it's getting right. a lot of attention <laughs> and deservedly so, I think. Um, so it's just a different beast. You know, I am really happy that Rustin is getting more attention and it's long overdue. Another thing I like about the documentary is that it really captures what it was like for him to exist at these different intersections, because I can't imagine in, in during that time period, you know, where there's a focus on the civil rights movement and extreme systemic racism and extreme homophobia and existing at the intersections between the two and being brave as he is to go out there and you know, live like he lived. Well, and, and you know, things were bad in, at the time of the March on Washington, but they were significantly worse earlier than that. Right. And, and I, you know, again, we did something different than what they were doing, but we were able to just spend more time with things like, you know, there's a little mention of him being arrested in 1953 in Pasadena mm -hmm. in this sexual encounter. The Pasadena Police Department were notorious for going after people who were having, you know, even heterosexual sex outside of marriage. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I went to the, you know, looked at the newspapers from that era in Pasadena and, you know, they were always busting people for infidelity or what have you. So, you know, and his arrest record was used by the enemies of the civil rights movement to attack him and attack Dr. King. But, you know, there's no room in the, in the story that they were telling to really go into what that did. You know, he lost... Mm -hmm several important jobs. He was embarrassed. He was in jail for 30 days. And it wasn't, you know, the other arrests he'd had were for basically civil disobedience, but this mm -hmm. was a sex charge is what it was called and um, or a morals charge. And another thing which we couldn't even include in our film, but which I still think is fascinating is that he worked for the American Friends Service Committee. He'd been incredibly important to them as a sort of you know, strategist and thinker, and they were a major peace organization as they still are. And they decided they couldn't be associated with him after he was arrested on the sex charge in 1953. But then there were like this enormous flurry of letters back and forth about whether Quakers in good conscience could behave this way towards a gay man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is like 70 years ago. Right. And, you know, it was just one thing too many. We only had 84 minutes to make our film. And, you know, that's what PBS gave us was 84 minutes. But I always wish we could have included that because I thought it was fascinating that people were having these debates amongst themselves in the Quaker community about someone, you know, there weren't very many African-American Quakers. So, you know, and there weren't, as far as I know, many, you know, out gay people in the world of the American Friends Service Committee. So, so the Quakers who are peace, you know, faith, who believe in the brotherhood of all people were having this debate about how they, how he was being treated in 1953. So, you know, there's always more to tell. 
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. There definitely is always more to tell. And when you mentioned, you know, the different articles and archives you had to dive into, could you talk a little bit more about the research process, gathering all the information and how you use that to put together the story that you wanted to tell for the documentary? So we dealt with more than 100 archives around the world and we had footage from Ghana and all kinds of things. And we, you know, we didn't do it all. My co-producer and I didn't do it entirely ourselves. We had archival researchers who were fantastic. Um, and we had a co-producer who had the idea of writing to his high school to ask them if they had any stills or movie footage. And lo and behold, they had footage of the football team he was on <laughs> in 1931, which is just incredible. And so we put it in the movie. Um, but we really scoured the earth, you know, many countries. We worked with a number of archives. Um, most of the time we were looking for material that would tell a certain part of his life or a certain story. Every once in a while, it's the other way around. And I actually had a pretty ongoing disagreement with some of the people that were working on the film with me about one piece of footage, which we found at the Swarthmore Peace Archives. There was an animated film that was made in the 50s by, I think, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is one of the peace organizations that Rustin worked for. Mm. And it was beautiful, like Hollywood-style animation, which is gorgeous, talking about why nuclear war is a bad idea. And this was at the height of his anti-nuclear activism, which he did internationally and in the United States. And the footage is, you know, it's for another purpose. And the editor kept saying, we can't use this. This is ridiculous. And I kept saying, it's beautiful. And it's telling the story of people who are working against, you know, nuclear weapons in the mm. 1950s, which is an important thing that happened after World War II and after right. we, you know, bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, I said, no, we're putting this in the film. But, you know, so that was sort of the tail wagging the dog in the sense that I saw the footage and we tried to figure out how to use it. Right. Um, but I think when you're making a film, it's really important to be open to the materials that exist that you're lucky enough to find. Mm. And sometimes it's very detailed. For example, in that same era, he helped organize the, the French government was going to test a nuclear bomb in the desert regions of Ghana. Mm -hmm. And he organized this international protest against this, which was very dangerous. I mean, you can't go near where someone's going to set off a nuclear bomb. Right. Um, and I don't think they got that far before they were stopped by the authorities, but there are pages of lists of like how many gallons of fuel you need and how many trucks and this and that, and how many gallons of water to take into the desert. And that's the kind of thing like, you know, I think there's maybe one shot of that list in the film, but it's just an amazing amount of detail that mm -hmm. you get the sense of how bad, you know, what, what you had to do to get ready to go into the desert to do an anti-nuclear protest right. in 1959. Um, so anyway, I don't want to get to overload you with details, but... Um, no, details is good. The more people learn, uh, the better. All types of media need to exist to explore 
you know, one person's life and he's done so much, you know, there's no limit. There should be no limit on the type of information that people can learn and gain about an individual who's extremely important to American history and to American queer history too. Well, and it's kind of nice that he's finally being claimed as this intersectional figure by both the African-American and queer communities. Um, You know, I think there was a certain amount of dismay, distrust, I don't know what the word is of him from the sort of more proper parts of the Black community that, you know, he was too much of a radical, he was too gay, he was too open. Um, I I think, obviously, things are quite different than they were when he was alive. Mm -hmm. Um, Time has passed. He died in 1987. So, you know, but it is really exciting to have, like, there are more books about him, there are children's books about him, there's a some sort of it's not really an operetta but there's some sort of oratorio that somebody wrote this musical oratorio based on the life of Bayard Rustin and it's nice to feel like maybe we had a little part in some of this that that you know our work inspired other people to get interested in him and do these other things I haven't actually seen the oratorio but I did get invited it was somewhere in Ohio I think and I think that I don't know I just I love documentary it's one of my favorite genres and I've learned, you know, so much just by watching them and just learning how much more flexible and and open they are. So I do hope that this, you know, this is something that, and that's why, you know, I wanted to talk with you because I want people to discover that there's so much more, you know, you only have, you know, movies are two hours long and they focus on very few things. They have a very big through line, but documentaries can explore so much more and I just hope that this is one of those that people seek out and pick up and PBS has always been great with chronicling these types of figures you know everybody everybody should remember eyes on the prize and why things like that PBS were very important so I see your documentary is something that's very much a part of that important narrative well, thank you. I mean, first of all, thank you for watching documentaries. Like every anyone like me who hears that, it's, it's always puts a smile on your face to know that people are actually watching the documentaries because we put our hearts and souls into them and you hope that people actually watch them. And, you know, I know lots of people who have seen the Rustin film, but, you know, it's nice to hear it. So thank you. And Eyes on the Prize was incredibly important. And- right you know, has also been reissued, but I don't know how many people have seen it in more recent years, unfortunately. Yeah, it's what, you know, I'm a child of the the 80s. And so it was one of those things that I sort of grew up watching because PBS will put them in rotation. Like it seemed like every year, you know, you just get a chance to watch it or, you know, it was being taught in schools at the time, you know, it was something that we had to sit down and, and watch. So after watching it and it's, you know, it's a, it's a quick watch. I don't know. I guess I just was really happy to see someone like yourself who connects the material and, in various different ways put something out like this and be brave enough to to do it, especially back in 2003, where things were not even as, I don't know if advance is the right word for now, but I don't know, I guess people were less open to hearing about things like this, so. Well, I mean, I don't know that I thought it was brave. I thought it was an important story that hadn't been told. And unfortunately, PBS, I think it's a bit better now, but at the time that our film was broadcast, I think there had been only four or five portraits of gay Americans on PBS, like in the last 15 years before we made our film. It just, you know, and one of the strands of PBS, which would have been the normal place to put this film, told us that 
And this is really appalling to me. I mean, again, times have changed, but the American Experience Program told us that he wasn't important enough to be on the American Experience. And I wrote them back and I said, you know, you are being homophobic and racist, and I think you'll be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, both Black people and gay people actually pay taxes that go towards public television. The P is for a reason. <laughs> and right, I couldn't right. get a response. <laughs> but um, I think that I was right. And I think now they would say that was a really terrible thing that we said that or decided not to show your film. <laughs> but anyway, and I don't want to sound like, like Sour Grace, but I was a little shocked by that response. You know, sometimes I joke that PBS is in the 19th century of television. Right. <laughs> I think that's accurate. I think they maybe moved into the 20th century, but not quite the 21st century. Right. Anyway, I don't I don't want to sound, I mean, I was really happy that we were on the program POV. I just thought it was kind of a strange thing that the major historical program on PBS didn't want our film. That is unfortunate and sad to hear and I feel like there's there are people who've done so much for this country and there's still barriers to getting their stories out there no matter how much they've contributed which is ridiculous well Um, and and things are really different 20 years on than they were then I just want to reiterate that I don't think that would have happened today right but it's still shocking to me that somebody would say that Byron Russell wasn't important enough to be (laughs) on a major show on public television. Right. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right, right. And, you know, the level of comfort that people have and still have with dismissing these important figures important to several types of different histories is uh is is quite it's quite something to hear. But I'm I'm glad that we've moved on from that. And your documentary is, I think, a testament to that. Well, I think we have a lot more sophistication about even, you know, I don't know that the term intersectionality had even come into being. It Maybe it had by then. I, sh- I should look this up. But, you know, people talk a lot about intersectionality now in a way that, that they didn't then. And, you know, that both of his identities were extremely important to him and not, you know, divisible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there have been really significant steps made particularly in commercial television and film to show, you know, people of color, queer people, complex stories. We're still working on this, particularly about women. Mm-hmm. Um, but but things have changed a lot in 20 years. And I, I want to make sure that I acknowledge <laughs> that, that things are better. Um, I mean, in 20 years ago, I don't think anyone would have made a narrative film about Byron Rustin. It just, right. they wouldn't be able to get the money to do it probably. Right. So I guess I have to celebrate that we're in a different era. I actually looked up the term intersectionality and Kimberly Crenshaw had coined it in 1989. Oh, I didn't know it was that old. I knew she had created it. And it was it was really in the beginning, mostly used in this narrow legal sense of, you know, an intersectional, you know, something you could sue over an intersectional, I don't know what the term is, like harm that was caused mm-hmm. that you could say, I'm taking action because this is... You know, and I've I've seen lots of lectures by her about what it is, mm-hmm. but I think it's since been really broadened to you know to have a non legal use, right, in everyday language. So when people watch your documentary, what do you hope they take away uh, from watching the documentary once they they see it? Um, if I could be personal for a second. My my mother is now 95 years old. She hasn't watched it in a long time. But when it came out, I think she saw it three or four times. Mm-hmm. And after the second time, I think she said to me, I probably need to do more, you know, to help other people to mm-hmm. 
connect to communities that maybe she wasn't part of. And I was like, wow, we've got, you know, it worked, you know, I mean, I'm just talking about one person, but, you know, I hope that, that Rustin's life will help people think about their own communities and, and how to make social change and what justice is and work that still needs to be done on civil rights and all sorts of other things. You know, a few people have told us that the film changed their life and that's just, you know, an amazing thing to hear, but, but I hope it spurs people into action in some way, or at least makes them think about how they're living their own lives and, and the commitments that he made and how profound they were. Mm. I looked it up at one point, he started working on racial justice when he was 15 and 38 years later was when they passed the, you know, 1964 civil rights legislation. I mean, most of us do not have the wherewithal to work on the same terrible problem for 40 years. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's just amazing, you know, but he did. Um, so I hope people will think about that, about his, you know, just the sort of the breadth of his commitment and the depth of it mm -hmm. and what they're doing with their own lives. And it doesn't mean that they all have to go become civil rights activists per se, but um, I think that at least for me, I just hope that people will be inspired by his passion and his commitment and his belief in social change. And there's also kind of an optimism, right? You work on something for 40 years, you could get depressed and say, oh, it's never going to get any better. And obviously civil rights isn't unfinished. There's a great deal of work still to be done, you know, many decades after the March on Washington. I'm not saying that, that Bayard Rustin finished that task, but he certainly made a big push forward during his lifetime. Right. Thank you so much, Nancy, for, for coming on the Scene to Scene podcast and and being very candid and sort of sharing, you know, your experience with creating this documentary and, you know, your hopes for where you where you want it to go uh, in the future. Well, thank you so much. Do I, do I get a hat as cool as the hat that's on your icon? Uh, I don't know what I did with any of my fedoras. I think that was a bygone era that is... I've moved on from that look. I don't even look like that anymore. But unfortunately, sorry, I don't have anything like that right now. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. And have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye.